Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hey, you guys, welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm Megan Dwyer. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff, the pioneer in the field of self-compassion. I am such a fan of hers, and this was an incredible conversation that I can't wait to share with you. Self-compassion is something that I talk about a lot, and it's something that I have always struggled with because I never really believed that I deserved it, honestly. And we're not taught this. We learn by watching and observing other people in our lives. But today, I'm learning how to give myself permission to be kind to myself on both the good days and especially the bad days. And Dr. Neff's work gives us those tools to be kinder to ourselves. And she teaches us why practicing self-compassion is so important, especially for women. So who is Dr. Neff? Dr. Kristen Neff is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She's a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion almost 20 years ago. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters on this topic, she's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. They co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook and Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. Her newest work focuses on how to balance self-acceptance with the courage to make needed change. In June of 2021, she published Fear Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive, which is a must-read for all women. It's an amazing book. In our conversation today, we talk about the benefits of self-compassion, the three components of self-compassion, the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion, the two sides of self-compassion, and why it's so important to understand both of them within ourselves, how gender role socialization impacts our ability to be compassionate, and so much more. You guys can connect with Dr. Neff on her website, which is selfcompassion.org. You can follow her on Instagram at Dr. Krista Neff. You can, she's also out there on Facebook, and you can follow her on Twitter as well. And you can also get a copy of her newest book, Fear Self-Compassion, on Amazon or anywhere you get books. I'll link that in the show notes as well. All right, you guys, I can't wait for you to hear this. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the incredible Dr. Kristen Neff. Enjoy. Hi, Dr. Neff. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I am very honored to have you here today. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. Should be an interesting conversation. Oh, money always is. (laughs) So this show is about helping women heal their relationship with money by working through the thoughts and the beliefs that we have around money while recognizing the impact that culture has on our relationship as well. We're not taught personal finance in school, right? And, And so many of us feel this underlying shame and insecurity around it because we're unfamiliar with it. And I think that the way through that is through curiosity and massive amounts of self-compassion. And self-compassion is a huge theme that I talk about. It inevitably comes up on almost every single episode that I do. And considering you are the pioneer in the field of self-compassion, I am really, really excited to have you here today. So I would love to start by having you tell everyone about yourself and the work that you do. Yeah, so um, I research and I teach and teach workshops on self-compassion and so self-compassion is basically, it's, it's really, so com- the word compassion, and passion means to suffer, calm means with, it's, we're used to being with the suffering of others in a warm, supportive way, you know, the desire to help in some way. 
So self-compassion just means we, we're turning, we're including ourselves in the circle so that we also are with ourselves and in our moments of fear or difficulty or struggle with warmth and support. Um, and so I, I actually didn't come up with the idea. I actually learned about it when I learned about mindfulness meditation. And that's something that's often talked about there. Um, but about over 20 years ago, I decided to measure it. If I could measure this construct and, you know, do research on its relation to well-being. Uh, and, it, and it's really strongly linked to well-being. So in other words, when, when things are difficult, either because for personal reasons, maybe we failed or made a mistake or we feel inadequate in some way, or else just, you know, things are difficult. The pandemic hits or, you know, something difficult happens externally. Um, what we know is that it makes a huge difference how we relate to those moments of difficulty and self-compassion is a much healthier way of relating to suffering than um, some of our more habitual ways of doing so. <laughs> Mm, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, that's the big thing I talk about all the time is, you know, shopping as an outlet, right? I mean, and that's, can, it, that's just one of many kind of coping strategies that I feel. Yeah, like for difficult are. emotions, we either try to numb them out, we try to distract ourselves, maybe through shopping or having a drink or eating or, you know, other things, or, or we really resist the negative emotions and what we resist persists and grows stronger. So we, we press it. And then we get caught in these loops because we can't we can't let the negative emotions pass through us because we're trying so hard to fight them. So really, it's a way of kind of holding negativity. It's not suppressing it. It's not covering it up. It's not positive thinking, like saying things are great if they aren't. It's Classic just being warm and, right, warm and supportive and caring toward the fact that we're having we're having trouble. You know, we do feel inadequate or we, we're noticing we're doing something that's not healthy or we feel a lot of fear or just, you know, anything challenge, any sort of suffering, pain. For some people, suffering sounds like only big suffering. So if you want, you can just use distress or frustration, or it really doesn't matter, but any sort of negative emotion or experience, self-compassion allows us to be with ourselves in that experience in a way that keeps us from getting overwhelmed or, you know, trying to deal with it in other ways that aren't so healthy. Yeah, I mean, I think of it, fear. Fear is a huge topic because you know, yeah. I, I named the podcast Money Isn't Scary. I mean, I think so many women fear approaching it, fear looking at it, fear thinking about it because they don't or either, you know, don't have the knowledge of it or maybe it's going to be kind of that gateway drug to something else that they fear even more, right? That they don't, they don't even want to know about. So I, I think that's a really cool way of putting it right that we're trying to hold the fear and, and that's right like hold yeah. its hand and, and, and also hold ourselves in the midst of the fear you know right. so it's like if you're really afraid and a friend comes and gives you a hug and says hey i'm here for you i'll be you know hold your hand or whatever we just we feel safer again it's not like the problem disappears or goes away it's still there but we feel supported we don't feel so alone Right. And that we can actually learn to do that with ourselves. So compassion, I mean, unlike self-pity, self-pity is feeling sorry for yourself. Compassion is, is just, is really a connected stance. Just like if I pity you, I'm looking down on you, there's separation. If I have compassion, it's like, oh, hey, I've been there. Yeah. I felt scared about money or whatever. There's a sense of connectedness. The same thing with self-compassion, right? So we, we recognize that Fear, difficulty, shame, all these things are human, right? We're, yeah. we're, we're by definition imperfect. There's nothing wrong with us for having these emotions. Um, but because they're challenging, we try to be, we try to help ourselves in any way we can. We try to support ourselves. We're warm as opposed to harsh, you know, instead of shaming ourselves or judging ourselves, we say, okay, well, that's human to be scared of money or whatever it is, or to be scared of the future or to, to feel like I want to distract myself from boredom or painful feelings, whatever it is. Um, but because I care, maybe the way I'm trying to do that isn't so healthy. And so I, I want to change not because I'm a horrible person and I have to change in order to be a better person, but simply because, hey, it's, you know, I care about myself and I, I want to be healthier and happier. So it's a, it's a much more productive way of dealing with feelings of inadequacy or shame or, you know, behavior patterns we have that aren't that helpful. And we, it's a lot easier to learn from our mistakes or to grow from areas where we're stuck 
if we're doing it out of love and not shame, you know, it's actually gives us a lot more resources to be able to say, oh, well, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we could try this. Or if it's just like, I'm a horrible person, we can't even see because we're just overwhelmed with feelings of shame and inadequacy and it makes it harder to learn. Yeah. And it pulls you out of that victim mindset into a more empowered mindset, right? That's right. Yeah. Because it's that's so self-pity is not very helpful. Self-pity is poor me. What was me? You feel like a victim. Compassion is the goal. This is human. Everyone experiences something like this. People also get through it. You know, I can get through it. It's just part of life. It's part of something. It's part of the learning process. And when we do that, we're much more able to adopt. It's called a growth orientation where we focus on, well, you know, what can I learn from this? How, what changes could I make that may work out better? Yeah. Trial and error, you know? Yeah. So I'm really curious as part of the definition of self-compassion, there's three components to self-compassion, but before yes. we get into that, can you tell us some of the benefits and the positive impacts that you've seen from your research of self-compassion and incorporating this into our daily lives? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're almost limitless because if you think about it, when we have negative emotions like shame or fear or anxiety or anger or stress, whatever, and we don't deal with them in a good, healthy way, that's really the cause of mental illness, right? People may develop anxiety disorder, or they may develop depression or eating disorders or addictions. Um, it can lead to like high blood pressure, physical health problems, because we know we, we aren't, you know, calm mentally, we often, it often takes out uh, physically, lead to things like burnout. I mean, really most of the mental, and I wouldn't say most of the physical, but a lot of our physical problems and probably most of our mental issues come from not being able to adequately deal with the pain of life, you know, because mo almost no one lives a perfect life. So you, you have pain because you're a human. And if you, if you can't hold it, if you can't deal with it, if you get overwhelmed by it, or if you use very unhealthy coping strategies to deal with it, it's going to lead to problems. So the research shows, you know, it's linked to certainly better mental well-being, less depression, less anxiety, less distress, you know, less addiction, uh, le less suicidal ideation. One, one of the ways people try to escape their pain sometimes ultimately is because they don't even want to be here anymore. Um, fewer eating disorders. What's interesting is not only is it linked to fewer negative states of mind, but it's also linked to positive things like happiness, life satisfaction, curiosity. And that's because when you're warm and supportive towards yourself in the face of, let's say, I'm really frightened right now. I think, okay, you know, I'm, I'm scared. Well, I'm here for myself. I care. How can I help? I'm, you know, I'm not alone. This is normal. That's feelings of connection and feelings of warmth and kindness are actually positive emotions that lead to things like happiness and life satisfaction, right? I was going to say, stop rumination too, which is like. Yeah. Well, yeah. So almost by definition, when. When you're ruminating, you aren't being self-compassionate, right? So when you're compassionate, so mindfulness, so the three, I'll just tie it in here, yeah. the three components, well, kindness, which I kind of talked about, a sense of common humanity, which I talked about, but also mindfulness. So in other words, in order to give yourself support, you need to turn toward the pain and you need to be aware of what's happening. It's like, you know, it's like if a friend called you and said, I'm really upset, you can't give your friend compassion if you're like, oh, I'm too busy or I'm not going to focus on, you know. So um, the mindfulness allows us to, to see things clearly. Okay. Yeah. I'm upset. We aren't, we aren't stuck in it, which rumination is when we're stuck in it, we resist it, we play it over and over again, or sometimes we repress it which also gets us stuck. So mindfulness allows us to be aware of what's happening as it's happening with some space around it so that we, you know, we aren't repressing nor are we getting stuck and over-identified or ruminating on it. But yeah, so uh, it's linked to, to, to positive outcomes. It's also linked to physical health because of course, for instance, when you really criticize yourself, it increases cortisol. We know that's one of the things that happens that can lead to inflammation. It can lead to high blood pressure. But when you're warm and supportive towards yourself, for instance, it reduces cortisol and increases heart rate variability, which is kind of flexibility when we feel, because what it really does is it helps us to feel safe. When we're criticizing ourselves, when we feel like there's something wrong with us, when we feel isolated, we feel very unsafe. So we feel more safe when we can give ourselves support, when we remember that we aren't alone, there's something, you know, there's normal to experience things like this and, and the mindfulness. So instead of exaggerating things, we're kind of, okay, Here's what's happening. No, no more, no less, but also no more. It's just seeing things clearly. And that helps us feel safe. And that sense of safety really impacts us physiologically. 
So it actually deactivates sympathetic nervous system reactivity and increases parasympathetic, which is linked to all sorts of positive health benefits. There's also benefits for relationships, right? So even though it's self-compassion, what we know is the more kind of sense of safety and warmth and care we give ourselves, the more resources we have available to give to others. You know, if we're full of shame and self-loathing, we don't really have a lot left over. If we're burnt out, you know, we don't have a lot left over to give to others. But when we resource ourselves with compassion, we actually have more resources available for others. So the research shows, you know, people have better relationships, more satisfying relationships. And that's not just from the self's point of view, but other people's point of view. They they like people like more self-compassionate partners because they say they're more giving, more balanced in the relationship. Probably the biggest thing that to be aware of, because a lot of people really think that they need harsh self-criticism to motivate change. And they think compassion is just about, you know, just accepting yourself, just letting it slide, give yourself a break. Almost, right? Complacency. It's not complacent because, you know, like a parent who's indulgent or who doesn't try to get their, you know, help their kid go to school and achieve their goals in life, they aren't a compassionate parent. They aren't helping their child's well-being. And similarly with us, if we care about ourselves, we're going to want to change unhealthy behaviors. It's not self-compassionate to just let things slide that are causing harm. It's not compassionate to not try to reach your dreams or reach your goals because that's really important to health and happiness. And if we care, we're going to want to do that. The whole difference is normally we with, with self-criticism, we motivate change by saying, unless I get it right, I'm going to hate myself. I'm going to criticize myself. I'm going to make it so uncomfortable that I'm going to force myself to change in order so I don't feel this discomfort. And unfortunately, the it, it kind of works. You, you kind of prod yourself into trying harder, but it creates performance anxiety, which you know decreases your ability to do your best, um, especially if there's too much performance anxiety. It can create a fear of failure, right? You stop taking risks because you're so afraid that if you fail, you're going to shame yourself. So the research shows very clearly that self-compassion is an effective motivator because, so just for instance, we're just, we just got a study, um, one tiny little step away from being accepted for publication where we taught self-compassion to NCAA athletes. Mm -hmm. So they were self-compassionate about the mistakes they made in sport, or maybe there's something going on in their training routine. So we taught them to be, you know, warm and supportive to themselves to kind of think of themselves as being like a really good coach who believes in them, but also gave them good feedback because again, it's not helpful to not get good feedback. But it's constructive criticism as opposed to, you, you know, you're, I hate you, you're, you're stupid. That's not very constructive. And, and they, it actually improved their performance, you know, so it, it, it helps. I'm sure the way it was delivered as well, probably like the tone and the articulation, yeah. the words that were used, all that probably has something to do with it as well. If that's being delivered in a positive, softer way, rather than like, you know, you think about college coaches just like yelling and you know yeah some people are are motivated that way right I'm somebody who's not so I think it it can kind of work but but it has these downsides that are actually counterproductive like creating if you create too much anxiety that can actually mess up with your ability to perform at your best right you know and it can help you it can keep you from taking risks um, now, it doesn't mean, so if you're an NCAA athlete, it doesn't mean that you're that the second best is good enough. Yeah, you want to be number one. You want to be the top. You want that competitive edge. But how are you going to get there? You know, and why are you getting there? Are you getting there because you love the sport? Because you just want to be your best? Are you trying to get there because somehow you are, you're worthless if you don't achieve that? And once that starts coming into play, it actually starts being counterproductive. That's something I talk about all the time on my show, intention, right? So if if we feel kind of guilt or shame about shopping or what or spending too much right. money on something, which happens all the time, right? Yeah. How do you counteract that? Well, I think you have to get down to the level of like what matters to me, what's important to me. And you know, I'm a mom, I've got two little two little kids. My audience is a lot of moms as well. And I feel like we sort of you know, once kids come into the picture, you sort of lose your identity to some extent, right? You're not who you, what you value now is likely very different than what you valued before having kids. And so many times we don't even know what that is anymore. 
because our, our lives are just, again, on this treadmill, like I was mentioning earlier, you like, you just hop on the treadmill and you just keep on going and you don't even take the time to kind of like step off and think like, slow down, right? And, and think about who I am and what I even want right now. So I, I always talk about, spend, like, you won't feel guilty if you spend your dollars in alignment with things that matter to you. And an right. example, I like to run. So if I were to spend whatever, $100 on a new pair of running shoes or something, okay, like that's important to me because I'm right. going to get good use out of those. But if I spent $100 just on a whim, like at a store, because I was having a bad day or a tough morning and my kids were screaming and I just needed to get out of here and I was just needed something as like a little dopamine hit, right? You know, then I'm likely going to feel bad about it or feel guilty about right. it. Then right, that right. Kind of creates those underlying levels of shame. So I think there's, these are similar concepts like uh, around figuring out like what's the ultimate intention here? Yeah. We get that. <laughs> what matters? And, so, and, and another thing that I think that's relevant, especially for spending money is, so, so when I first introduced that concept to the field, I really contrasted it to self-esteem. And there's a big difference. So self-esteem is judging yourself positively. Self-compassion is relating to yourself kindly. And with self-compassion, like there's an unconditional sense of self-worth. Yeah, maybe my behaviors need to change. Maybe my situation needs to change. But I am fundamentally, because I'm a flawed human being worthy of respect, like all human beings are, I am fundamentally worthy. Yeah. Self-esteem, on the other hand, is, is usually, not always, but usually contingent. Right, it's contingent on success. I judge myself positively when I succeed, negatively when I fail. It's contingent on social approval. Do people like me? Am I popular? Do I have high social status? Um, and it's con contingent on the way we look, for instance. And so sometimes, you know, if you think about our, our society, they really, so advertisers often use our need for our contingent self-esteem to sell us products. If you buy this product, you'll be cool. You'll be valuable. People will like you. You'll be attractive. Yes. And so it's not really an authentic necessarily reason for buying something. It's because we want other people to like us or we want to feel like, you know, we've got status or, or whatever it is. It's feeding off our insecurities. It's feeding off our insecurities. And so one of the things self-compassion does is it allows your, your sense of worth to be less contingent. It's unconditional. I'm worthy if I succeed or fail. I'm worthy if I, you know, have a good hair day or a bad hair day, or, you know, it's like those things that may be important to me. It's not like they aren't, they aren't because they may, they may be important, but my worth isn't dependent on it. Yeah. And that really frees you to start asking the question, well, what's important to me? What do I value? And it's important in so many ways. This it might be important in terms of what do I spend my money on? Is it because of what society tells me I need to do to be cool? Or is it because of what's really important to me? It's also really important for drawing boundaries, which is a, another huge area, especially for women, because women are valued by society for being saying yes, for yes. self-sacrificing, for helping others. You know, and obviously some of that's good, but when you start saying yes to everything to the to the expense of yourself, you're harming yourself, you're not really helping anyone at that point. You know, and my, my new book, Fear Self-Compassion, really goes into that because historically, these gender roles and these traditions are there for a reason. There's a reason we don't like women who say no, because they're uppity and they aren't going to go along with the patriarchal system. You have to be aware of how these things came to be, right? And you have to be willing to say, you know, people may like me a little less if I say no. That's actually true. I mean, it is true. <laughs> they like you better if you say yes and you meet all your needs. And they, they may like you a little less if you say, no, I'm sorry. I would love to help, but I can't because this other thing's important to me. But that oh, ability to draw boundaries, this is the empowerment of self-compassion because I'm going to do what's good for me. I'm not going to do it just because you like me. You think I should be to be a good person. I already know I'm a good person. I thought of what's authentic and true for me. And I'm going to make my decisions based on what's true for me, not on whether or not you like me. And that's a huge shift, a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, so what, what's the goal here, right? Is the goal to be liked or is the goal to be true to yourself? Yes. And I think that's where you sort of hit a level of maturity that. Yes separates you from, from, from where, I mean, for me anyway, it's just, it's a growth flag. Focusing on how I feel rather than how other people feel. Is, yes. It, that's just like a light bulb moment. 
Right. Yeah. And so over one of the strongest findings of the research over and over again is more self-compassion leads to more authenticity. Right. But it's not like my way or the highway. So we've, I, I did a research a study where I looked at how people resolve relationship conflicts where like maybe, you know, your, your partner has a different need than you, your children or, or your friends. And what we found is self-compassionate people were more likely to compromise. So they don't just subordinate and say, yes, 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 whatever you want, dear. But they don't say, whatever I want, who cares about you? It's like, no, your needs are important and my needs are important. How can we try to figure out a solution that meets everyone's needs? Because that's that's the thing. It's not like, it's not selfish. It's just saying, I also count. Whereas sometimes people just say, well, if I'm not going to be selfish, that means I'm just going to be self-sacrificing. Well, that's not helpful either. We want We want balance. We want to include everyone, including ourselves. And if we don't, we'll eventually burn out or we'll start to resent it or it leads to, you know, unhealthy behaviors. Which can spiral into, you know, uh, bad places quickly, right? We, <laughs> we know that. You mentioned fear, self-compassion. So I would love to have you go into describe the, the different types of self-compassion, tender yeah. self-compassion and fear, self-compassion. What's the difference and why do we need both? And why is this so important for women in particular? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and this is something I've been writing about more recently because I, I kept on seeing that people have misunderstandings of self-compassion. They thought it was only about acceptance. It is partly about acceptance. We accept ourselves unconditionally, flaws and all, warts and all. Uh, we also accept our emotions. In other words, if I'm upset or, you know, th th this is happening, you know, I, I try to, I try to heal it, but if, if we don't accept that it's happening and we just fight it, we think we should be other than we are, then that's actually not very healing. So we accept ourselves, we accept our emotions, but we don't accept behaviors or situations that are harmful. That's not self-compassionate. So the other side of self-compassion is it is aimed more at situations and behaviors that I call fear self-compassion. It's basically taking action, you know, taking action to make a change or to protect ourselves or to draw boundaries um, in order to do what we need to, to be safe and well. So um, it, it may take that, you know, it may look like saying no to others. It also may mean saying yes to ourselves. In other words, uh, taking action to meet our own needs. If running's really important to me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that action because it, it makes me happy. Or, um, you know, if, if music or spending time in nature or learning, if these are really important to my well-being, I'm going to use some of my time, energy, and resources to say yes to myself because my needs count too. Uh, and, but then really motivating change. Again, it is not self-compassionate to be complacent. Right. We, if we're doing things like maybe we are spending too much money and it's causing me a lot of stress and it's harming me. Compassion is like, oh, that's OK, sweetheart. It's like, I'm OK, but the behavior needs to change because it's, it's not helping. It's harming it's me. It's not sustainable. Right? It's not yeah. sustainable. Right. <laughs> uh, but again, it's, it's not because you're a horrible person if you do it. It's just because, yeah, because I care and I want you to be happy and I want you to be able to have a sustainable life. Right. So any sort of mot motivate, it might, it might mean things like trying to um, be healthier by inner diet or exercise or things like that. So that's the fierce self-compassion part. But the reason gender comes into it is this is, so it's like yin and yang. We need both, right? If we're too accepting without enough action, we may be complacent, but if we're all about action without enough acceptance, then it's like, you know, the consumeristic treadmill, or maybe we're endlessly striving and our, you know, it's never good enough. So we need balance. It's like yin and yang. But society has gendered these things. It's crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Society has made, you know, uh, people, and when I get, so I'm going to use terms men and women, but I'm not talking about gender identity, whether you're non-binary or cisgender yeah. or whatever, just gender role socialization. People have socialized men to be fierce, but not tender. So men who are too tender, who kind of like are kind of caring toward themselves or sensitive, they get bullied, right? They're called names. So men are socialized that they can't be too tender. Uh, and partly that's because men have more, historically anyway, more power in society. And tenderness is supposed to be a female thing, right? So if men are too tender, they're, they're, they're kind of too female, which means they have less power. So to maintain power, they just have to be fierce. Mm -hmm. And then... Women, on the other hand, they're raised to be tender, but not fierce. 
If a woman's too strong, she's too agentic, she's too competent, people don't like her because they think a strong, competent woman can't be tender. And we like nurturing, caring, you know, soft, warm woman. You know, everyone needs both. But the what we what society did is okay, well, maybe if you have a heterosexual couple, the woman holds the tender energy and the man holds the fierce energy. You know, and it can kind of work, you might say, and for some people it may work, but what happens if they split up? And it also makes women totally dependent on men for agency. You know, if we just accept things the way we are, we don't get angry, we don't rock the boat. Well, isn't that convenient, right? <laughs> but so but so it really harms everyone and it harms yeah. um, people raised as men just as much as people raised as women. And, you know, putting anyone in a shoebox, you know, I probably more, I'm naturally a little more fierce than, than tender, even though I'm cisgendered, do you know what I mean? So it kind of like, it messes everyone up. <laughs> so I really think part of the authenticity of self-compassion of caring for ourselves is embracing both sides of ourselves, you know, and making sure that they're balanced and integrated so that we can be whole. Um, so I, I wrote the book for women just because it was too complicated to say, well, for men, it works this, people raise as men, it works this way because they aren't allowed to be tender and women. So I just focused on basically helping women reclaim the fierceness that has been, that society's tried to say they shouldn't be, um, but, but really every human being needs both. And what is fascinating by it is one of the components you said of self-compassion is this kind of um, interconnectedness. And, yes. and so I think you start to realize that to some, to some extent, and I feel this even my, in, with myself, you know, when that kind of mama bear part of me comes out, right. I feel shame about it. And so I yes. think to, and people know, will shame you as well. It's not, it's not just you, it's society. Yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and to feel like you're not alone and this is a piece of everybody, like everybody has this in it. It's like, exactly. that is really powerful for me to know that that feeling of, you know, I'm not alone in, in all of this. Like, well, it's and, so and important. in many ways you can think of um, self-compassion as a way of reparenting yourself or kind of yeah. like a good parent. And so think about it. you have kids. Imagine if a stranger came up and started harassing your kids, mama bear. I mean, you would, you'd probably, you know, you would do anything you needed to, to protect your kids. Right. And then you're also tender with your kids. So with our children, uh, we're naturally both fierce and tender. We're fiercely protective. You motivate your kids, you get them to school, you know, you, you motivate change, you provide for them, you work jobs, you know, you naturally protect, provide and motivate for your children. And you're also tender and accepting with your children. So we also need all these energies with ourselves. Right. So the, the good news is, is it's not like we've got to reinvent the wheel. I mean, women do have that. They call it mama bear, not papa bear. Right. Because yeah. in nature, a, a mother protecting her children is one of the most powerful forces of nature. Yeah. So we have access to it. We just have to give ourselves permission to use both of these energies with ourselves. But then the good news is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We already it's already in our biology. It's already in our life experience. We just have to redirect it. So we direct it inward as well as outward. So one of the things that's coming up in my mind is I, as I said, I'm a financial planner. I've worked in the financial services industry for 17 years, like my entire career. And it is a very male dominated industry. And I'd say the the few women that kind of worked their way up and were in positions of power kind of in the corporate world and, and other environments, cultures that I've been in, had been, you know, pretty intense women, I feel like, yeah. and and have and and probably have felt that they needed to act that way or have that side of them come out in order to kind of compete with the boys, right? Yeah. And I have felt my whole life that I am just a square peg in a round hole. I don't fit uh-huh. in this industry whatsoever because mm-hmm. I am incredibly sensitive and I'm an empath. I I'm I will cry, I will just wear my heart on my sleeve. And I'm like, I don't fit in here at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has taken me until the last, I don't know, I'd say year, year and a half or so. And a lot of kind of self-reflection and self-awareness work and compassion, self-compassion, like the work that I'm doing with the the podcast to really realize that I do have a place. And actually I am kind of, I have that tenderness 
for the other people. And to some extent, it's, and we'll get into this in a second. That's another question I have. It's harder to have it towards yourself, I feel like, than it is mm -hmm. to other people. But the fierceness that I always thought that I had to have to make it in this industry, to be in this world, doesn't necessarily have to look a certain way. And that's what I'm recognizing. Yeah. An unbalanced way. So male-dominated culture is unbalanced and an extreme imbalance can get into, get into toxic masculinity. So the research shows, this is interesting. So um, it's true that to, to make it in the corporate world, you have to have all these very agentic kind of traditionally male fear traits. But there's also a penalty. Why is there a class ceiling? Because you have to do it to, to succeed, but actually people like fierce women less. And liking is linked also to how much you get paid, for instance. And mm -hmm. so if a woman tries to negotiate for a higher salary, people think she's being pushy. And we don't like pushy women. So this, the, whereas the man is like, oh yeah, you're just being you know, self-assertive and we like that. So we'll reward him. But the research shows that people who can integrate both so if you're able to display both your fierceness and your tenderness, then that kind of softens the rejection of fierce women and helps helps them actually be accepted. So men, it doesn't really matter if you're just male or you also in integrate the male and the female aspects. If you were just too, if a man was just too tender, he would not make it. Um, if he's both or he's just one, he can make it. A woman has to pretty much be both to make it. If she's just one, if she's too fierce with no tenderness, it will eventually be a problem, which is unfair, but you know, but that's the way it is. But in other words, owning both sides of yourself and trying to integrate them. And, and my book's a lot about how to integrate both energies. Yeah. So you can have the tender acceptance of emotions and yourself and other people at the same time that you can draw boundaries and be agentic and, and you know, go right. for change. That's actually the most effective. So it's not either or. That's the whole problem is we, we've kind of said you've got to be one or the other. No, you don't. <laughs> you really don't. Yeah. You can be both simultaneously. Well, I just feel like we're conditioned to. We're conditioned. Absolutely. That, right. Culture has yeah. taught us that it's, it's this or it's black and white. That's right. It's black and white. And it's not. It's always shades of gray. Yeah. 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 Yes. That's a huge lesson I'm learning in life in general as well. So uh, the question that I just had, why is it so much harder for women to be compassionate to themselves than it is to be compassionate to somebody else? Yeah, and it, it, it's harder for everyone, but but women, so if you look at the data, uh, women are this more extreme. There's they're, more of an extreme difference between how they treat others and themselves. So this, they're more likely, to, yeah. they're like more compassionate to others than men are and less self-compassionate to men are. There's a few reasons for that. Um, some are cultural, right? Because women, men are entitled to meet their own needs. Women are supposed to meet others' needs. So that doesn't feel as natural. There's a fear that it's selfish, right? Uh, for all people, some some of the things, but actually the biggest thing that gets in the way is the fear that people lose their motivation. So, you know, it's not going to affect your motivation if you're compassionate to someone else, but you may be afraid it's going to affect your self-motivation if you aren't really hard with yourself. Uh, but some of it's also actually probably evolutionary, right? In that compassion did evolve primarily to help others. For our infants, if we're compassionate to our infants, they're more likely to survive. If we're compassionate with other group members, that group is more likely to survive. Whereas for the self, especially in the context of difficult negative emotions, with ourselves, we feel threatened. So when we feel threatened, we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And we aim it at the problem, which is ourselves. So we fight ourselves with self-criticism, thinking that that's going to like whip us into shape or maybe like blunt the criticism of others. We flee into shame and feeling of isolation or we, we get stuck and we ruminate. And we kind of go over and over it again. We freeze. Um, you know, when your friend gets far from their job, you aren't so immediately threatened. So you can kind of go into the care mode. So you might say we're doing a little bit of a hack by, by using the compassion system that may be probably primarily evolved for others and using it with ourselves, but our bodies don't know the difference, right? When you put your hand on your own heart, you reduce cortisol, just like if someone else puts their hand on your shoulder, you reduce cortisol. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Tell us a little bit more about the physical, the physical benefits and the physical, like yeah. ways we can be compassionate with ourselves. Yeah, so we, we do know that um, it works partly through the nervous system, like I said, so 
sympathetic nervous response, which is fight, flight, or freeze. It reduces that. Parasympathetic, things like um, increased heart rate variability when we feel safe, that allows us to be flex flexibly respond to our environment. It, it increases that. So touch basically evolved as one of the primary signals of care and compassion because, you know, think about parents, they, they, you can't talk to your babies before they're two. So you use touch to signal you're safe. I care about you. I'm here for you. So what we know is that self-touch, like putting, again, putting your hands on your heart or giving yourself a hug or holding your hand or something like that. It feels weird, but it's one way we actually triggering um, our parasympathetic nervous system and we feel safer, we feel calmer. And that's a really good way to express compassion for ourselves because we're used to doing it for others. So partly, you know, for instance, uh, better immune function, if we give ourselves compassion, partly because of the, the nervous system reaction. Uh, another big way it works is to sleep quality. So when you're ruminating and when you're beating yourself up and you're full of shame, you don't sleep very well. <laughs> Whereas if you're saying, well, I'm doing the best I can, it's only human and everyone struggles, you can fall asleep more easily. And so better sleep quality is, is linked to, you know, all sorts of good health outcomes. Um, also things like healthier eating, right? So people who care about themselves, they tend to eat healthier food. They tend to exercise more. That's also linked to physical health. So there's a lot of pathways by which caring about yourself leads to not only mental well-being, but also physical well-being. It makes so much sense. That's why I'm a, I'm a hugger. <laughs> Somebody uh -huh. loves to hug. And there's something about it. It just, you know, when you're, when you hug somebody, it just like another person, that physical like embrace or yeah. holding somebody's hand, or, you know, yeah. I think about just like snuggling, like physically holding my four-year-old or my, you know, yeah. my, just, just, yeah. just holding them close. There's something about it that just, like you said, it probably just decreases cortisol. It just, it, it, yeah. you can it reduces feel it. The, the flood, I guess, of, of emotions and anxiety that I will often yeah. have. And you can do it for yourself. It's not like it replaces other people. And it's great if you have a friend handy to give you that hug you need. Wonderful. Yeah. But they don't know us there at three in the morning alone in bed. They aren't, might not be there. So it's just, right. it's just, it's like, it's not a replacement for other people, but it's another resource, you know? And also if, if your friend tries to hug you and you're beating yourself up and full of shame, you're not going to be able to accept that hug either. So yeah. by you know, giving yourself permission and setting your intention to be there for yourself and support yourself also allows you to receive it from others as well. Right. So right. you can't leave yourself yeah. out of the loop. <laughs> so when you're sitting here and I, you know, as an example, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm alone in the house and I'm just working away. And all of a sudden I get an email and oh, that said, uh -huh. Oh, uh, you made a mistake or you missed this or something like that. And uh -huh. you just, you get this pit in your stomach and your brain right. just goes crazy. What are the things you can do? I mean, you just said you could put your hand on your heart. Yeah, you can, or, you can, or a pit of your stomach, put your hands there. And a lot of it is setting your intentions. Instead of just reacting, you say, wow, this is really painful. I need to give myself some support and compassion. Mm -hmm. So you can do that physically with physical touch. You can remind yourself so it feels in that moment like you are the only person who's ever made a mistake. Everyone else at your company is not making mistakes. It's just you. You feel isolated. You feel cut off. Of course, that's not true. It's also true that mistakes are how we learn, right? So all those things, you know, you can remind yourself of um, just some words of support. You know, I'm here for you. Just because you made a mistake doesn't mean that you are a mistake. You know, it happens. Um, I care. What can I do to help? Do you need to have a cup of tea? You know, just that warm, supportive stance. But really, the mindfulness is turning toward it. This really hurts. It's like acknowledging that. Okay, this this really hurts. Okay. So um, what do I need? That's the warmth and support. What do I need to care for myself? And I'm not alone. This is nothing abnormal about this. This is part of being human. And the reason that's so huge is because you know, when, when we forget that, it's like we're kicking ourselves and we're down. Not only does it hurt, we feel abnormal and like weird and shame and the only person in the world. And it's we know it's not true, logically. We just got to remind ourselves of it, you know. So much easier said than done sometimes, but yes, absolutely. But it is a practice. It starts getting easier with, with practice. It feels less awkward. And over time, just, you know, any neural pathways we, we use over and over and over again, it's like running, you do it enough and it becomes easier. You get better at it. Yeah, it's a habit. 
And to that point, actually, that was another question I had for you. I mean, we live in this world of kind of quick fixes and instant gratification. And we know we all in our logical brain, we all know that that's not how to make like lasting change, right? How it works. Right. So how do we integrate self-compassion into our daily lives without making this sort of, sort of like a fad or a trendy thing? Cause I do feel like to some extent, self-compassion has become a little bit of a trendy concept these days. But it's not, and it's real, and it takes work, and it should be part of kind of the integral way of of living, right? So I'm curious if you have any thoughts around that. Well, it doesn't really take work; it just takes intention. Intention. Yep. I mean, it takes it, it takes time and energy and effort to call yourself names or to shame yourself or mm-hmm. to you know do all those unhealthy ways of coping. Those are also effort. It's really just a matter of you know any. So by definition, passion means suffer in the land, right? It's, it's how we relate to the difficult stuff in life, compassion. Mm-hmm. And when that stuff comes up, it's already come up. You didn't choose for it to come up. It's here. That thought of inadequacy is here. That mistake is here. That challenge is here. So how are we going to relate to that in the, in the moment? Are we going to relate to it in a, a supportive way? Where remember we aren't alone. We're going to turn toward it with mindfulness or we can relate to it in an unhealthy way by shaming yourself, by falling into the illusion that we're all alone by like just ruminating or just suppressing it. One's not more work than the other, right? It's just, yeah, we're habitually yeah. conditioned to do the, the negative stuff, but it's actually it's less easier. work. It's yeah. less effort to just say, oh, well, you know, it's human. I'll try again. What can I learn from this? How can I support myself? It's not effort. We just think it is. What's the effort is to try to change our habits. And anytime you try to change a habit, there is some effort. But self-compassion itself is not effortful. It's actually less effort. It's less energy. Yeah. We're just so used to thinking a certain way and saying these things to ourselves that that just, um, it's just autopilot, right? So it feels uncomfortable to approach it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that's the bit that the, the breaking the old habits takes a little bit of effort to learning. And so, because those, those grooves in our brains are so well oiled, takes a little effort to try to change them. Yeah. But yeah. like I say, it, it's not something you do like every morning, you, you can meditate if you want, and it may help, but you don't have to. It's just the way you approach every moment of experience. Do you approach it in a caring way yeah. or in a harsh and cruel way? Yeah. What are some other things you can do kind of in the moment when you're going through your day, you know, like you're, <laughs> you, maybe the kids are losing it and you feel like you're going to, they're winding winding out, right? And you feel like you're going to just top off and lose it. So what are some things that you can do, you know, in those moments? Like, you know, take deep breaths or do you have you kind of like breaths, you can use Physical touch is really helpful. Like give yourself some sort of supportive touch. Again, put hold your hand, put your hands on your, your heart or something like that. Very easy thing to do is just draw on the skills you have. We already know how to be compassionate and supportive to others. So you can just think, you know, what would I say to a good friend I cared about in this situation right now? Yep. That's going to come to you quite easily. And then can you try to say something similar to yourself. Um, another thing you can do is to intentionally call up the three components of compassion. So Remember mindfulness. This is hard right now. This hurts. Common humanity. This is part of life. There's nothing wrong with me. This happens. It's part of being a parent, whatever. And then some, again, some words of kindness and support. I'm here for you. How can I help? What do you need right now? You know, it really helps strengthen it. It's like a three-legged school, the three, the, a stool, the three components of self-compassion to, to call them in intentionally is very useful. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I think like Constantly highlighting the three components, especially the mindfulness part of it yeah. is really important for me. Like just saying like, yeah, this, this isn't easy right now. This is, yeah. you're, you're dealing with a lot and just recognizing yeah. that for me, it's like you get so overwhelmed and consumed by the That's emotions right. to take a step back outside of yourself and to look at your, to look at the situation as kind of like a That's right. impartial third party, somebody that's just walking by looking in the window. Yeah. They don't know they're not in your brain. They don't know what you're feeling right now. So that yeah. I think is, for me anyway, is incredibly helpful. 
Yeah, that's that's the space that mindfulness gives you. Very important. It gives you a little perspective. You aren't so lost in it. It kind of allows you to validate what you're experiencing. You're, you're much more aware. So instead of being lost in the movie that's playing in your mind, you can say, oh, wow, I'm watching a movie. <laughs> that's, that's a scary movie, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but mindfulness alone isn't enough. I mean, it's very helpful, but if we also really need the two other components. And, they, you know, mindfulness, if you practice it enough, the other two will naturally arise, but it helps to do it explicitly to remember that you aren't alone, that your connectedness to the whole, and then to bring in the warmth. So that that observer actually isn't impartial. That observer cares and wants to help, you know? Absolutely. This is awesome. Thank you. (laughs) I would love to have you just talk about where people can find you, where they can learn more about you and and get the books and learn more about self-compassion. Yeah, so the easiest way is just to go to my website, which is selfcompassion.org. You can take the scale I developed if you want to test your own self-compassion level. I have um, a lot of guided recorded practices. If you're interested in the research, I, I probably have thousands at this point of research articles organized by category on my website. Uh, I teach some workshops, but you can also, there's a link to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which offers more in-depth self-compassion training. So we've been doing this for, you know, a long time now. So there are a lot of resources. It's not, it's not very difficult, but that's probably the place to start. Just go to selfcompassion.org. Awesome. I do have to say one thing. This is something that I wasn't taught as a kid, but Mm -hmm. it is being taught in schools and it, or these types of strategies and yeah more so for sure yeah yeah and exactly more so than they were and when I see my first grader come home with you know these coping coping tools yeah that I never learned you know yeah. where I'm getting worked up and he's just like mommy take a deep breath do a whale breath do you know yeah, do yeah. what you need to do right and it's just really really cool to see so I'm psyched that all of this yeah Thanks to you and the work that you're doing and you're putting out there. I mean, it's making the world a better place. It's making kids' lives. Um, mm. It's it's setting them up to have the tools and the strength to have them face what they what they will in life. And um, I yeah. mean, just incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a whole movement. But, and for those of you who are parents, actually, the best way to teach your kids self compassion is to model it. Yeah. So the more self-compassionate you are, the more your kids will see that as the way to deal with difficulty. So. Yeah. It's another incentive to practice yeah. it in your daily lives. That's right. Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful, fun conversation, and I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's been fun. Thank you.